Bet you wish you were here. Hello, guys. Welcome back to my podcast. Why don't you slip into something more comfortable and relax and unwind with the melodious sound of Anna? We'll stop all that rubbish now because I need to get on with it, guys. I need to get on with it. I've been promising you that I'd be snappier at the top. And I really need to be today because this interview is a little bit longer. I'll tell you why some interviews are a bit longer, right, if you're interested. I'll tell you a quick anecdote and then bang, the guest is on. There's no faffing, no messing, right? Sometimes I'm doing these interviews online, right, on the internet. And some of the, the, the technology that you're using, I, th- I mean, some of it's great, don't get me wrong, we're all very grateful for it. But I think it's harder to really kind of unwind and relax with someone though, isn't it? It's not Coco kind of territory, like, and I find, like, it's hard if it goes on too long. I just don't like asking people's time online kind of over, like, a kind of half an hour, kind of 25 minutes, half an hour, really. That's just me. I don't Maybe that's just me. When I get them in person, though, oh, boy. Oh, boy. I will terrorize them then. I'll keep them hours, like. It's a kind of a hostage situation, really, and that's exactly what happened with today's guest. Today's wonderful guest is a dairy woman whom I greatly admire. She is a journalist and a lawyer. She is a regular columnist with the Irish News and you will have heard her on radio and television across the island of Ireland. I think that's why she's such a suitable guest because she has maybe even an equal understanding of the two jurisdictions and what they might need to do to understand each other a little bit better. She is often heard providing commentary and analysis on Irish politics Northern Ireland Affairs, Brexit, human rights and transitional justice issues. And because I'm one of Cork South Central's most thorough interviewers, we cover most of that. And there are also lighter moments too, my friends. There are a few laughs in the mix and the interview ends with, I have to say, one of the most upbeat, positive messages and a really lovely final note, perhaps of any of the. And I don't want to. I don't want to have my guests competing with each other. That's not. It's not some sort of podcast hunger games that I'm trying to engineer here. I'm just saying that this particular interview does end with a lovely, hopeful message. I think for the future of these islands. Before, and I told you I wouldn't be faffing. Before I hand you over, I'll just give you a tiny, tiny little bit of an anecdote. So as I say, when I meet people in person, oh boy, I take over their house. The kettle's on. I'm baking, or like preferably they're baking for me, and it's tough to get rid of me. The only thing in this interview worth noting, though, is my absolutely wonderful producer, Claire, who is usually 99.9% of the time completely on the ball. We had a very kind of chaotic period in the build-up to the trip up north. She missed an email or two kind of a couple of days out, and uh, one of those emails from Patricia stated, like, you know, you're fucking more than welcome, come on up, we're going to have a cool time and all that, but just to flag it my daughter is getting married kind of like, you know, in around the time that you're up. You know, I think if we'd have both seen that, we would have said, look, we could reschedule, we'll do it online. But, you know, cut a long story short, we rock up. I mean, Patricia's kind of pretty much getting ready for the wedding, really, like, and here I am with a load of gear, stick a mic in her face, press record, and off we go. Uh, What do you think of Brexit, Patricia? Bang! The interview ends, and fucking Patricia's straight on stage with a mother of the bride speech. So the woman has a patience of a saint. And to make matters worse for her, the first question I ask her then is, Who are you? Now that is um, probably a, a, a difficult question for anybody to answer because how do you define yourself? Mm-hmm. I mean, you could go into social media and you could see lots of choice words about how other people have defined me in the past. <laughs> you know, Same. And, <laughs> and, and that's okay because most of the time, you know, I don't read the comments, I don't read the replies because nobody has time for that and nobody needs that amount of aggravation. Who am I? I always think of myself as, you know, there's there's different facets to me there's the person who's you know very invested in their in their family and you know has a a very strong family dynamic with the whole extended family here in Ireland and overseas I suppose fundamentally I'm that the person with a sense of dinshanachas you know that old Irish word Mm. that sort of denotes the sense of belonging to the place that you're from. And it's not just about the physical space that I'm in right now in this house or, you know, this parish, the nation that is Ireland. So, you know, whether that be on this landmass, on this island or belonging to that sense of, you know, the Irish nation and the Irish diaspora and having lived in other countries in the past and having that strong sense of connection with the people and with the place, that's 
that's sort of innate to who I am. And I'm also the daughter and granddaughter of two women who were remarkable in their in their own way. I mean, my grandmother and her sisters were students in UCD and were taught by Thomas McDonough. My mother was a pioneer in the sense that she went off and, you know, she trained as a chef when women were considered cooks. You know, she taught us a lot about life skills, things that, you know, young people don't learn now. Um, she was also hugely active in the Relatives Action Committee during the hunger strikes. So that kind of quiet activism was something that I witnessed growing up and had a huge influence on me. So I grew up with a sense of not just who I am and where I am from and feeling very connected to that, but also about a civic duty to be an activist, to try and encourage people to do good for the sake of doing good, to, to make things better. You know, it's not enough to just shout slogans you actually have to get out and attend the the demonstrations or write the letters or write the book campaign for events so that's kind of where I grew up and where I came from that you always had a sense of who you were and a sense of what you needed to do in order to make this place the best it can be yeah and I hope that that's something that I continue to give to my own children you've already touched on it there but like I'd love for you to give our listeners a sense of just the kind of day-to-day challenges of growing up as a Northern Nationalist in this jurisdiction. Our family, like so many families, couldn't help but be impacted by the conflict. You know, my father and my brother both died during my childhood. And so my mother raised the family on her own. I was three years old and the eldest was 15 when daddy died. So that was quite a challenge. And I suppose the dynamic of the time, you know, the early 80s with the, the hunger strikes happening, street protests, people were much more politically aware and I suppose much more involved in activism than perhaps would be the case now. Although the dynamic, obviously, the political situation has changed. I suppose the biggest challenges or the biggest, the thing, the memories that impact on me the most is probably being stopped at checkpoints, being stopped, whether that was, you know, going from Derry to Donegal or whether it was, you know, being stopped at Newry when you're on your way to Dublin or going out on a Saturday night. And, you know, when you live out in the country, it's a big thing to have a, a teenage boyfriend who drives a car. But when that car gets pulled over every time you go out and it was always the girls were taken out of the car, you know, you were told to take off your boots so that your boots could be searched to make sure you weren't hiding anything. And it was January and it was snowing or it was raining and your feet were getting wet and, and the whole act of that wasn't designed, you know, partly designed to demean you, but more importantly, it was designed to get a reaction out of the young fellas in the car. Because if they did something or said something, then they could, you know, be arrested for acting inappropriately. And I think that was always something that bothered me, that type of attitude, you know, whether it was military or the RUC at the time. But I think the other thing was really growing up with a very strong sense of community too. And people who looked out for each other and who took care of each other. And just having that confidence of knowing that you could go to your neighbour when you were in trouble or sometimes your neighbour, you didn't even have to go. They would see and they would come and help. So there's a huge sense of community that was very positive and that was very affirming as well. You know, we were very lucky. We had quite a happy childhood despite some of the tragedy that we saw. But that was because of, you know, the character of my mother and how she made sure that (laughs) the expression I would use, we never knew that we were poor because she always fed us well. She always managed to keep us clothed. She always managed to, you know, make ends meet. It was a lot for a woman with six children to be able to do that after her husband died. And also to put up with, you know, with the traumatic nature of that death. Daddy was shot by the UVF in our home when I was only three years old. So all of us being there at the time and witnessing that happening and mommy having to put up with that, you know, she she kind of, she did everything that she did in spite of that and because of it, you know, to make sure that we had the best that she could possibly give us. Um, and I suppose that's why I just have such huge admiration, not only for my own mother, but for so many other mothers in this community and, and women who went above and beyond and found that extra ounce of, mm. of strength and perseverance when most people looking on from the outside would wonder how they ever did. Brilliant. Could you give us a sense of from when Brexit happens, is there a significant shift in mood towards a potential border poll? So could you kind of track that for us, like from, say, before Brexit to after Brexit? What's the difference here? Well, I think a lot of people in the north were not at all anxious 
about the Brexit vote because nobody really thought it would pass. Everybody felt that David Cameron has been put into this position where he said he would hold a referendum and he's doing it now to save face, but there's no way they could be that foolish. The great British public would be that foolish. And so people were were not at all exercised by the referendum campaign. At least that was my sense of it at the time. And then there was a sort of the period of disbelief where it just went over people's heads. I suppose the full impact didn't really hit immediately. Uh, there was a lot of talk about you know, what it would mean in terms of travel and immigration and you know, the ability for people from this part of Ireland to work in other EU member states and to live in EU member states. But it was all quite general high level stuff. And then as we started to get into the detail of negotiating the EU 27 and the British government negotiating the withdrawal agreement and we saw then every aspect of life that was going to be impacted by Brexit. You know, you're looking at economic issues, you're looking at family and social issues on this island where you're talking about people who, I live in Derry but I work in the Republic of Ireland, Mm. you know, so how is that going to work? How am I going to be able to transit between the two in terms of pensions, earnings, all of those things? Is my right to work going to be affected? Probably not, but I, you know, because I am an Irish citizen, that should be guaranteed but all of that needed to be clarified you had issues then around by business in terms of imports exports the impact it would have on tariffs on taxation on the actual physical movement of goods and those issues started to build and build and build and people realized that this wasn't just as simple as britain rejecting eu authority over domestic law and policy mm-hmm. But it was something much more linked to who we are and how we view ourselves on this island. And I think part of the success of the Good Friday Agreement is that it didn't make people have to articulate who they are or where, you know, what their constitutional position was. Mm. It was enough to say we're setting up devolved administration in Stormont on the basis of equality, parity of esteem, the DeHaan system, fair representation, whatever you want to call it. You know, this is how we're going to manage our governance. And within that, we'll trundle along with the issue of how we settle the constitutional status of the island somewhere down the line. We know that we're going to have to do it. That's why we've put it into the Good Friday Agreement that there can be a referendum, but we don't have to do it yet. So let's just say the provisions there down the line and we'll leave it. But then people start saying, okay, well, if I'm solely a British citizen, then I can't live or work in Spain or France. Mm. My children can't study as part of the Erasmus programme. And it started to make what I would call, you know, the, <laughs> sound like it's not, but the, but the, the rugby Irish, you know, the people who supported the, the Irish national rugby team who would be from an Ulster-British tradition kind of go, well, actually, no, I identify more with Lansdowne Road than I do with Twickenham. You know, I have that holiday home in Donegal or I'm used to going down to West Cork in the summer to a lovely holiday home. And, you know, that's the lifestyle that we like. I like being able to drive and down to Ross Lair and getting the ferry to France and go on my holidays with my kids. And how is all of that going to be impacted? How are we going to rationalise that sense of identity? And that's when questions began to build. The issues of trade and tariffs were very unique and specific to the business community. You know, the issues around checks and controls on imports and exports were all very specific. And yes, people worried about it in the sense that, oh, I wonder will that mean there'll be food shortages in the supermarket or what's the issue going to be with prescriptions and stuff like that. But everybody kind of worried about that in the abstract sense of, but sure, that'll have to get sorted and it will get sorted. I mean, we've seen proposals in the most recent set of EU proposals around the protocol. We've seen proposals around sorting those things like veterinary checks, prescriptions, all of that. So it will get sorted. That still leaves the sense of identity. And part of that has been, in my view, because the British government, or rather the English don't really believe that people of Ulster British identity are as British as eventually the way that Margaret Thatcher did. Interesting. But I don't think that should be a shock to anyone Mm. because when thousands of men from this part of Ireland went to work on building sites in London in the 50s and 60s, they were all paddies. Mm. Didn't matter if you were Sammy from the Shankill Road, you were still a paddy in London because of your accent, Mm. because of that perception. That has always been the case, that there is a perception amongst a lot 
of the English, not the Welsh and Scottish, but English people particularly, that everybody from this part of Ireland is just the same. You know, they're just a paddy. <laughs> and, um, and I don't know that that ever fully was absorbed into the psyche of the unionist community, mm. that they were perceived in that way. Or do they know it deep down inside, maybe? And that's why they have this kind of conflict going on inside themselves, that deep down inside they know that they're not British enough. They're not viewed as British enough yeah. when they are British enough, yeah, because that's true. that is who they are, because that is their. You know, I talked about my innate sense of who I am, and I have no doubt that there are many uh, of my neighbours here who have that same innate sense of, of British identity. That is who they are, but it is not who others perceive them to be. And it's I mean, like that's enough. it's not good enough, mm. and it's it's very similar from to an Irish person. From the north, who is told or is made to feel less Irish because I grew up in Derry and not in Drogheda. Mm. And that perception exists in this island as well. So Absolutely. that's the difficulty for this part of Ireland is, you know, where do you fit? If, you know, the South says you're not really that Irish or elements of people in that jurisdiction say, you know, you're not really for unionists and those of an Ulster British identity. And they're being told, you're not really, you know. <laughs> You're kind of like the kid that nobody wants yeah. in some ways. And, you know, so that started to, to change perceptions for a certain group of people who felt, well, this is not how I identify. I identify more with Irish aspects of my life or those are the things that are more important to me. It is more important to me that I can still have all of those freedoms that my children can access, all of the freedoms that come with being a European citizen. And then that went, that became then transitioned into well, how do I then feel about the national question, the constitutional issue? Is this something that I'm prepared to reconsider because I now see that my best interest, the best interest of my children would be served by remaining within Europe? And I think that started the, the conversation. That saw very practical things like a huge upsurge in the number of people applying from for Irish passports. Yes. And it's not as simple as a document. It's really not. People say, oh, yeah, but that's just a means to an end. It's not really. People thought long and hard about mm, that. You know, symbolic. Because of my profession, I witness passport application forms. And I have witnessed forms for people who would never in the past, never in the past, considered applying for an Irish passport, even though they were legally eligible to apply for them. And their thoughts about it have been very much that they feel that the North within Europe, not necessarily within a United Ireland just yet, but the North within Europe will be a better place than going it alone for yes. them and for their children and in some cases for their businesses. And so have just on that, have you talked to unionists who have become open to the idea of a united Ireland that previously wouldn't have at all? Yeah. And I mean, that's something I'm on the board of Ireland's future. And that's something that's very much part of what we're trying to do. I mean, we're a non-party political organisation. What we want to do is to encourage conversation and debate about the very practical issues that need to be dealt with if we're to look at Irish unification, at a new Ireland, at a shared island that we all can feel part of. And how do you address the concerns of those of a British identity or British citizens within that? So the focus needs to be on really, really practical stuff. So the discussion papers, the documents that we produce are about rights and citizenship. They're about health, education, the economy, all of these things to try and encourage debate about what needs to be tackled because there does need to be a shopping list. There really does. It's like, oh, you know, if we're going to talk about this, what are we going to do about the issue of health? These are going to be the stumbling blocks. A referendum campaign in England on, on Brexit was won because of a double-decker bus, an extra 35 million a week for the National Health Service. That never happened. But the reverse side of that coin is that despite the fact that we have the longest waiting lists in any region in the National Health Service in the North, that we have the worst health outcomes of any region within that National Health Service. People still believe that it's something that they hold dear and they, they're not prepared to sacrifice it in the event of a border poll. There needs to be a health service that, that's free at the point of entry. Well, that puts the responsibility onto the Dublin government. Yes. To say, yes. We can upscale Slauncha Care. This is a healthcare model that all of the political parties in this jurisdiction have signed up to, despite you know recent wobbles on the implementation. But it will be implemented. So the onus then becomes on Dublin to come. You know what? As a government, we've costed it, and we know that we can scale it up so that everybody 
on this island would be able to access healthcare that's free at the point of delivery. We will not have a two-tier health system. That sort of discussion needs to happen. That's why there's a huge onus on the Irish government to produce these documents, to produce a paper on unity, to establish mechanisms for looking at how things will work, what things will cause. I mean, so the, the reverse of that, the converse of that is, you know, people I know here are spending €1,200 in September every year to get their children back into school between books and uniforms and copy books mm. and photocopying fees and in some cases iPads. You know, the schools insist on, on technology. That's unheard of. If you ask somebody in Derry for, oh, we're going to need a thousand quid to get your kids back to school, and that's just one child. They would just look at you and go, are you wise? No, mm. no. You know, so there are costs there that need to be looked at. There are models that need to be looked at. Education systems need to be looked at. I am on record as saying this, you know, France is on its fifth republic and we shouldn't be afraid of our second. There should be no issue or problem with re-examining the constitution. Mm. Because what that does, first of all, it allows you to get rid of stuff that you don't have to go through a series of referendums (laughs) to amend, you know. But more importantly, it allows you to put in additional safeguards so people can be sure that their identity will be protected. It allows you to put in safeguards that are not just about Ulster British identity, but also the one in six people in the 26 counties who live here, who weren't born here. Yes. But this is their home, you know, so it's what 17% of the population now call Ireland home who weren't born here. So there's a different set of rights and identities and protections around that. And some of that is around race, religion, culture and tradition that we have to take into consideration that we didn't have to take into consideration when the constitution was initially written. So a lot of that could be addressed, but we need to have the conversations and unionism is becoming more and more open to that conversation. And we see that with people who grew up in a unionist tradition, like, you know, within Ireland's future, particularly if you look at Reverend Karen Sathurman, who's a Baptist minister who has become part of Ireland's future, but not because she dismisses her upbringing but because she thinks that a better future is possible. Mm. And Trevor Lunn, who is from a unionist background and who is an independent MLA, again, thinks that a better future is possible in the post-Brexit era, one that protects and promotes rights and identity, but also in very, very practical terms. It's about addressing the issues that have been raised by Brexit because those of us who are opposed to Brexit will say very clearly the protocol isn't the problem. Brexit was the problem. Yes. The protocol is, to, is seeking to mitigate the problems that Brexit has created. So that conversation is happening and it will continue to happen. And that's why, you know, the public meetings that Ireland's Future has held in the past and will continue to hold in the months and years to come are about encouraging people to join that conversation, but also encouraging governments to start thinking and making really practical moves towards addressing the issues that will finally have to be addressed whether it's a referendum in five years or ten years it will come at this point i ask patricia whether she thinks the south's abandonment of the north should be part of any reconciliation process i've been forced into re-recording the question as it were because due to the fact that i'm a prat a nincompoop, or if you prefer, an idiot. I didn't put my mic in the mic stand properly, and at this point in the interview, it had started to droop down and render me largely inaudible. Thank you. Reconciliation isn't a word that I'm fond of, because I think that we understand reconciliation in an Irish context to mean forgiving and forgetting. And for me, that's not what it's about, because that places an undue burden of responsibility, primarily on victims. Right. Of wrongdoing to forgive and to forget. And I don't think that that's the basis for, unless we change how we understand reconciliation, then we have to do that. For me, that has to come first. That has to be about saying, you know, like, I understand where you're from. I respect your experience. I respect your identity. And, you know, I'm sorry for what happened to you, not you forgive me for what I did. You know, I'm sorry for what happened. So so there's a different kind of, of understanding that I have of reconciliation, which is about, it's about meeting people where they are and not trying to bring anyone to a place that they're not yet ready to be or that they may never be or that you want them to be, more importantly. 
And I have to say, for me, if we look at the example of how the Irish government has acted as part of the EU 27 and the Brexit negotiations, the Irish citizens in the north have been to the forefront of, you know, of their thought process because they know that the impact the negative impact that Brexit can have on everybody in this island is significant. And I mean, that's a campaign that was very much, whilst Sinn Féin still had members of the European Parliament, you know, those individuals, Martina Anderson in particular, was very vocal in a European context and saying these are the really practical issues that people have to address as a result of Brexit. And there is an impact on, you know, the promises within the Good Friday Agreement as a result of that because it changes the dynamic. So the Irish government has been very good about representing the interests of Irish citizens on the one hand, but it hasn't been very good about giving positive example to the rest of the country. And by country, I mean the island (laughs) of how to the rest of the island on how practical that should manifest itself and it should be around things like you know changing the language you know not I mean I've had some horrendous examples in the past I remember going for a job interview for quite a senior position being asked how I felt I would be disadvantaged by the fact that all of my relevant work experience was in another country Mm. and I'm scratching my head going what application form are they looking at and I'm like yeah My relevant work experience was 90 miles away. (laughs) This is not the other side of the world here. Um, It was 90 miles away. And it was just, it just blew my mind that that was an attitude. I remember seeing a letter in the Irish Times when this debate first raised its head, you know, about how Brexit might impact on the potential for speeding up calls for a unity referendum. And somebody was like, you know, we don't want them. We don't like them. They're untrustworthy. They're always fighting with each other. Northerners should just stay in their own lane. And I'm just thinking, see if you took that word Northerners out of that and replaced it with travellers or LGBT persons Mm. or black people or women or whatever it was, you know, any other minority or marginalised group, you'd be going, you can't publish that. Mm. You can't, but it's okay. It's okay. That level of sectarianism within the Republic of Ireland is accepted. It's it's not challenged. That's a problem. The government needs to set an example. And it could do that in real and practical terms. They have this independent process for appointing people to state boards. It's not enough people from this part of Ireland who are appointed to those state boards. The coalition had an opportunity after the last general election to appoint members of the Shannad who could have represented mm. the interests of people from the north, particularly at a crucial time in these Brexit negotiations when there should be a voice there that can clearly articulate issues around, whether it's economy, agriculture, pharmaceuticals, trade, identity rights. There's a huge scope of things that they could have brought people with specific expertise in to be able to represent those views. And they missed the opportunity because it was politically expedient as part of a coalition to just appoint people who didn't get elected as TDs. Mm. And, you know, it's terrible. So the government needs to lead by example. It does. It needs to lead by example. It needs to bring more people in with expertise. It needs to take a greater all-island approach. I think it's wonderful that we have cooperation in certain areas of health around, you know, paediatric cardiac services, around cancer services. A lot of those things are really, really positive, but it's scratching the surface. There could be so much more. So that's where I think it needs to go. Go back to the, the British for a second. Are the people at the forefront of the Brexit push initially, like the Farages of the world and stuff, are they not actually remembering that they hold jurisdiction over this part of the world. So, I mean, in essence, do you think it's more ignorance or arrogance that NI is forgotten about? I think it's most certainly arrogance. And we can see that through successive Tory prime ministers, Theresa May's Brexit withdrawal deal. She couldn't get it over the line. But she persevered with it. How many many times did she bring it back to Westminster for a vote? Three, was it? And how many times has Boris Johnson negotiated with the DUP and made promises and then not kept them? I think the attitude within Conservative Party has always been, because historically it was true, the Unionists will do what we tell them. They've always been able to, whether it was to literally recruit bodies for World War One and send people 35th Ulster Division over the top at the Somme or to vote in support of various government legislation at Westminster. And I think that arrogance still persists, that they expect that unionism will always toe the line. But unionism has, I suppose, realised that that comes with the price and the price has been that there's discontent within 
within their own electorate, within their mm. own support base. On the one hand, there's discontent that they supported Brexit in the first instance. And on the other, it's we should be out lock, stock and barrel because this is an opportunity for us to halt the march towards a united Ireland. Yes. So we need to be queuing at petrol stations and we need to have empty shelves in our supermarket because this is part of the Brexit hardship that has to be gone through. It's the Dunkirk spirit. Well, lads, do you know what happened to Dunkirk? It wasn't good, like, you know, the Blitz spirit. The Blitz spirit flattened the city of, you know, mm. the Blitz flattened the city of London. These are not things that are positive. Mm. <laughs> they're not, they're, yeah. they're, 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 they're not um, positive allegories at all, you know. And I think that that's part of it is like, this is our opportunity to, for hardline unionism, they see it as an opportunity to pull away entirely from the compromises, the political compromises reached in the Good Friday Agreement. And that's where they're driving it forward because if the Westminster government insists on no protocol, no European Court of Justice, none of this stuff. If they insist on in all of this, there will be hardship for a period of time, but ultimately it'll all go away and it'll be back to how it was under direct rule in, in the 1970s when it was just, it was just all straightforward and Stormont was collapsed and, mm. you know, there wasn't a Fenian about the place. Yeah. Which goes back to your early point as well of like, in a sense, then they're not British enough for London. So if they're collateral damage, so be it. You just feel that a kind of an English nationalism is the kind of thing that was behind the, the big push. And so be it if other parts of the Union fall. Would that be your take on it? If NI goes, NI goes once once England gets its freedom. Pretty much. I think for the, well, the vast majority, and we know this from opinion polls that have been carried out, the majority of people who have been surveyed in Britain, really, if that's what it costs, if that's what Brexit cost people who are pro-Brexit well if the cost is we lose the North okay we can live with that that's fine because none of them you know the vast majority of them don't feel any affinity to this part of Ireland mm. and the vast majority see it as a financial drain on the resources of Westminster so they don't want to have to deal with it in the long term anyway new tone completely but I know you've done an awful lot of work with victims and survivors of the conflict and would you mind telling our listeners about the type of work that that entails and your role in it if you wouldn't mind. This was a number of years ago. I was talking to a few people who had lost loved ones as a result of the conflict and were concerned that those deaths hadn't been properly investigated, primarily because these people had died at the hands of state forces. And so a group of families came together in Dungannon and met and sort of looked at what we could do to try and address what was at that stage seen as an imbalance in how victims of state violence were being treated. That led to the foundation of Relatives for Justice. And that was a very different and campaigning organisation, you know, that was about trying to look at legal and judicial remedies for families, as well as provide very practical supports that all too often people hadn't been able to access because in some instances they didn't feel that they could access state services if their loved ones were a victim of the state. They didn't feel like their GP would refer them for adequate psychotherapy or mental health services or in some instances people who required medical treatment for physical injuries weren't able to access it. Being a part of that sort of founding group really changed you know, my perspective, because for a long time, I saw so many families that were alienated and isolated. And, you know, you had maybe groups like the Bloody Sunday families who had the good fortune to sort of be together as a group and mm. to support one another emotionally. Yeah. And maybe in some times, in some senses, practically as well. But this kind of changed the dynamic. And so sort of looking at that and, and being part of that sort of establishment of Relatives for Justice was a big opportunity. And I then went on following the Good Friday Agreement being implemented. The Northern Ireland Civic Forum was established and myself and Alan McBride, who works in the Wave Trauma Centre and whose wife Sharon was killed in the Shanka bomb and who's no relation because we have to keep saying this to people. But Alan and I were both appointed to the Civic Forum as representatives of victims and survivors to be able to bring that lens into the advice to government that the Civic Forum was to bring. Unfortunately, that initiative didn't survive the first fall of Stormont, but it, it was a positive initiative in the sense that it was the first time 
time that victims and survivors were given a representative voice in the making of policy. And then subsequently in 2008, I was appointed along with three others as Commissioner for Victims and Survivors. And that was a statutory duty to basically make recommendations to government around how victims and survivors should be supported. And that was around financial supports, health care, social care, individual financial needs and truth, justice and acknowledgement. So that was a, a four year appointment and fixed fixed term appointment. And it was at a time when the victims issue was very politically, well, it's always been politically sensitive, but it, it was just just after the publication of the Eames-Bradley report on the consultative group in the past. And a lot of the work that they had done was kind of undone by the recommendation of a financial recognition payment to everyone who had lost a loved one. But essentially, the work that we did in the Victims Commission over that period of time was around getting better financial supports in place for individual victims and survivors, Start working with victims and survivors around the pension for seriously injured and that was in 2008 and we're in 2021 and the first payments aren't even out yet. This is how gut-wrenchingly awful it is at times because victims and survivors have been all too often treated as political leverage and as a result the policy hasn't kept pace with the need and I find that very very frustrating and I always have but I think one of the things that I feel that I did in terms of one of my achievements from that period of time was working in the commission to develop a comprehensive needs assessment which very clearly set out what government needed to address and how it needed to address it and you know looking at particularly around areas of truth justice and acknowledgement and you know saying I mean the model is not rocket science Eames Bradley said use the judicial system use oral histories information recovery whatever it is that you can get if you cannot bring legal proceedings but give people the information that they need you know, and that's a model that has still continued to exist within the Stormont House Agreement, which hasn't been implemented yet. So it's very, very frustrating at times that the policy doesn't meet the need or the policy doesn't move with the need. I find it particularly frustrating this discussion around amnesties, that the British government is looking at bringing in amnesty legislation for all conflict related offences because they're willing to, in their view, they're willing to hold their nose and allow loyalists or Republicans to have an amnesty if it means that they don't have to answer what the the police, you know, the RUC, the British military, the UDR, what they did. That's the compromise for them. We will hold our nose and we'll sign this legislation because our boys will be okay. The problem with that is that a lot of other initiatives in the past have been held up and said, well, no, this there was already an amnesty for this, for that. You know, and they talk about people who give information to help with the recovery of the remains of the disappeared and how they were granted an amnesty, but they weren't. They were granted immunity for prosecution for that particular event. But anything else, there was evidence of any other wrongdoing, they could still be prosecuted for it. Likewise with decommissioning, people who were the interlocutors between the decommissioning body, you know, non-state actors, mm. were given immunity for providing that weaponry to allow it to be decommissioned. And someone described recently the early release scheme as an amnesty for prisoners, but it wasn't because all of those individuals have been released under licence and it was part of a political settlement. So it's not an amnesty. There haven't been any amnesties here. So we need to be very, very clear that we still have a lot of work to do and the judicial process is part of that because there have been no other avenues for victims and survivors Mm. to be able to pursue truth and justice. And justice isn't always about someone being found guilty and serving a prison sentence. Justice is about, for the Bally Murphy families, it was about their loved ones being shown to be innocent of all wrongdoing. For the Bloody Sunday families, it was about an apology being made for the unjustified and unjustifiable killing of their loved ones. That is justice for them and there still needs to be access to different forms of justice for different individuals because we need to support victims and survivors and to not use them in a political context, but to see them as human beings. And I suppose, you know, carrying on now to part of, I think, what I got out of that work, the the advocacy work that I did as part of that commissioner role with individuals very much took me into the space where I am now, where I work with refugees and asylum seekers. I think it gives me a much more empathic ability to do my job because I've seen what has happened in this country and therefore I can fully understand what has happened to people who have come to Ireland seeking refuge. I can say, yeah, I can relate to that because, you know, this has happened here too. Is it cross-community work? Would you have worked with people from a unionist background who had lost loved ones? Absolutely. When I was first appointed, before I was even 
officially appointed when the word leaked that I had been appointed as victims commissioner. There were calls for my resignation from unionist politicians. The Disabled Police Officers Association refused to meet with me. There was a judicial review of my appointment taken by the unionist campaigner, Willie Fraser. By the end of the four years, I was the speaker at the AGM for the Disabled Police Officers Association. Willie Fraser had phoned me up and asked me, you know, was I okay? Is there anything he wanted me to do for him? And he was very sad to see me going at the end of my term. And that's because you just treat people as human beings. There's no political agenda with this. You're dealing with individuals who have suffered immense pain and hurt and suffering. You treat them with dignity and respect and and you will get that back. So yes, there was there was that work. There was also in terms of, of what I find most shocking in all of this was meeting with the MOD with the British Military of Defence and asking them about how they dealt with military veterans in terms of meeting their needs to see were there any lessons that could be learned for their civilian population and asking a question about you know how many people were medically discharged from the British Army as a result of being injured on duty in the north and they couldn't tell me. They didn't have the records. They didn't even know how many military personnel served here. They knew how many tours of duty had taken place, but they didn't know if one person was here once or if they were here 10 times. So they didn't even keep that data. So how do you know how big your problem is if you don't keep the numbers? But to not know how many people were medically discharged, that was shocking to me. So how do you treat that medical need within your veterans? if you don't know how big the problem is. There was a lot of eye-opening stuff there. But yes, it was also very much about what I said earlier about meeting people where they are. You don't, you treat people with dignity and humanity and hopefully you're able to do something positive to make a, a positive change. That's great. I won't keep you too much longer. There's only a few couple of questions left. But you, I mean, you don't have a crystal ball, but what do you believe will, will ultimately be the constitutional consequences of Brexit for these islands? And... Could you give me those in chronological order? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well. (laughs) I think what we're going to see in the next year or two, we'll see one of two things. Either the Brexit protocol will be agreed with whatever modifications or tweaks that need to be agreed in order for the British government to accept it, get it over the line. I think that the British government have rejected the protocol at this stage because during the grace period, they haven't done any of the infrastructure planning that they needed to do in order to be ready for when the grace periods end. And they're going, oh, no, we don't have the IT systems. We don't have the customs infrastructure. And now we're just going to have to say no, even though we signed it two years ago. We didn't mean it. So they might tweak it enough to get it over the line by reducing the need for checks and it'll be spot checks rather than all checks or exempting certain things. That might just be enough. If people see things ticking over nicely, you could actually see the conversation on reunification, constitutional question, get a little more quiet, you know, because people are like, well, you know, everything's running along nicely now, let's just leave it as it is. Which is quite shocking to me as to why unionism is so opposed to the protocol. If that's one of the potential consequences that people be like, well, sure, it's grand. Sure, it's grand now, lads. You know, don't need to worry about the constitutional question. It's grand. That could happen. Or unionism may... The unionism has painted itself into the corner where it says the protocol must go. Not that protocol must be tweaked, Mm. but the protocol must go. So if the protocol does go, where does unionism take itself? Well, the answer to that is that the DUP has painted itself into the corner of having to resign from the Stormont institutions. They run another election. That will change the makeup of Stormont significantly. The probability is that Sinn Féin will become the largest party and even though the first and deputy first minister positions are co-equal positions, the optics of Michelle O'Neill being a first minister is just unacceptable in unionism. You know, and you're kind of going, you know, is it because she's a woman? Is it because she's a Republican? Is it because she's from Tyrone? I mean, like, what is it, lads? You know, it's just... <laughs> could be she's actually from Cork originally. Oh, well. <laughs> See the way you claimed her there. <laughs> well, we claim anyone. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but... So that could see that could potentially see the collapse of the Stormont institutions. But my belief is if that happens, they're not coming back because this particular Tory government has no qualms about implementing direct rule. 
whatsoever. It'll mm. send over a couple of junior ministers, 20 or 30 senior civil servants, and they'll just rubber stamp everything Westminster tells them to do. And that'll be it. We can just turn Stormont into a nice fancy hotel or something mm. like that, because it'll never be back. And that then accelerates the demand for unity because people are going, hold on a minute, this isn't what we signed up for. So potentially unionism is shooting itself in the foot. If it, if it resigns from Stormont, forces an election and then refuses to go back because Sinn Féin are the largest party. That's the really, really foolish thing. Mm. So all of this could potentially happen in May next year, if not before, because that's when the next Stormont elections are due. Yeah. So that change could take place then. Although by then, if the protocol hasn't been removed as unionism demands, then we could see an election before that if they do resign from the Stormont institutions and cause that collapse. But if it ticks along nicely and the protocol gets through, things could quiet down and you could see the border pool debate like just getting a little quieter, ironically. My hunch, though, is that even with a tweaked protocol in place, there'll still be people who will be looking, no, actually, you know, we need a longer term solution. We need to look to a longer term future, which is not just about making do for now and everything's grand, because that might address the hard border versus the border in the Irish Sea issue around trade in goods and services, but it doesn't address any of the other stuff around rights and identity and free movement. It doesn't address citizenship issues. It doesn't address, you know, culture and it doesn't, you know, there's so much else that it doesn't address. So I think what Brexit has done has given people a political maturity and a level of political engagement in a sort of the middle ground that we're happy enough to let things tick along or now like, well, no, actually, we let things tick along and then the Little Englanders voted through this referendum when we took our eye off the ball and we're not doing that again. And what about Scotland? Do you think if Scotland, if Ref 2 is passed, is that a fatal blow to unionism either way? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it will be passed because I think Scotland has learned the lessons of Ref 1 in the sense that there was a huge document produced which was heavy on detail but it was so big that not everybody read it and a lot of people didn't know what they were going to get if they voted for mm. independence and it scared them. And I think the lesson has been learned. Bring that down into bite-sized chunks. But more importantly, before you put a date in the diary for that referendum, get over to Europe and get the roadmap back into the EU agreed. Yes, do Martina Anderson on it. Get the roadmap agreed. And then once you have that, people say, actually, you know. And also be very clear about what you're keeping and what you're giving away. If you want to keep the trade-in bases on the Clyde, then how much are you getting paid for them? How much space are they going to rent it? How much are the, the Westminster government going to pay you for it? You know, so I think all of those lessons have been learned. And I definitely think that we've come to a point in time where Scotland, I think, is ready to look at that issue again in a much more, like I said, with the political maturity that Brexit seems to have foisted upon so many of us. For a lot of, you know, people were ticking along with the status quo and took their eye off the ball and they're like, no, it's grand. It'd be grand the way we are. And now it's like, actually, no, we're not grand. We have to actually be engaged and active and make sure that we we clearly articulate what we want. Two questions, I promise. I'm finished then. Um, <laughs> two hours later and they're both load of questions you can answer them as long as or short as you like but like in a nutshell why did Britain commit this seeming act of self-destruction it's a colonialist mentality that's right. it it's the simple it's the legacy for me I believe it's the legacy of colonialism the British have also been used to being in power to holding mm. authority to wielding the power and to, to others capitulating to that because they have occupied those countries whether that's Ireland or India or however many countries around the world that you want to cite and the legacy of that is an inability to compromise I honestly don't think that Brexit was, was thought through getting Brexit done was a great slogan but nobody really knew what that meant withdrawing from a huge trading block and trying to go alone negotiating trade deals with every country around the world was a huge undertaking that nobody thought through because we'll just do it and everybody will agree to it because that's what they've always done well they agreed to it at the point of a gun lads they didn't agree to it because they thought it was a great idea so I think that colonialism has a lot to answer for that mentality of the great British empire is still existing very much in the upper echelons of the conservative party and unfortunately too many of the 
English electorate have took the soup and actually believe the fake news about how wonderful the empire was when it was their grandfathers and great uncles and great grandfathers who were sent out to places like Kenya and places like India and who in very many cases never came back. You know, who were literally, who were the bodies that went over to underpin colonialism and never returned. But look, you know, isn't it great? Because, you know, now we have tea because we, you know, we took over India and Sri Lanka and, Mm. you know, and, you know, we brought these wonderful things back to England. And it just, it's, I think that's a huge part of it. Um, And I don't really think that they thought it through. Perfect. And last question. You've already touched on this, but so final question. It seems to me that loyalists sometimes cast Sinn Féin, the Southern Irish government, and or the EU is the bogeyman. But is the plot twist of the whole thing that actually ultimately what is and what has always been the bogeyman is Westminster? <laughs> um, I find the whole Brexit debate very interesting in the way that unionism and loyalism is always trying to hive off the Irish government from the other 26 member states of the EU and it's it's the Irish government who are doing this it's the Irish government who yeah because you know they did it all on their own they wrote the withdrawal agreement and nobody else was involved lads Mm. you know it's very much going back to that old colonialist divide and conquer mentality and it's very easy to say that oh, an Irish government is dancing to a Republican chin sure what else would you expect well if they are it's a first you know I mean it's that <laughs> I, I, I'm not aware of many Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil governments or coalitions in the past taking policy direction from Sinn Féin so mm-hmm. that would be a first I don't know that Westminster's the boogeyman I think that Westminster is more the the drunk uncle in the corner at the Christmas dinner who, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, it's great. Oh, I love you. You're great. You're great. Who are you? Whose child are you again? You know, it's just, it's the uncaring. Yeah, it's not really, I know you're part of the family, but who are you again? They're just not, you know, they're just not as loved as they would like to be. (laughs) And I think maybe we need to show them all a lot more love. And that's the crux of the unity debate as well. Mm. The issue of the, the constitutional status of this island is how does everybody feel like they're loved and they're, they're, they're going to be embraced and welcomed in a new Ireland, whatever shape that takes. And I have no real hang ups about what shape that takes. I just think we're better together than apart. I think that's where it's coming from. It's more a case of we know you're part of the family, but we're not really sure mm. who you belong to. Well, that's a lovely note to end on that you're effectively saying love is the answer. Effectively that. And also... You've just given me another great potential character with the drunk uncle who can't remember who. That's, I mean, that's a sketch. So, <laughs> so okay. McBride, thank you very much for your time. An absolute pleasure. Pleasure, Rose. Ash, come here. How are you getting on yourselves? Welcome back to the little bit at the end that I do. Now, you're in luck. I'm going to keep it faff light. It was a very comprehensive and longer interview, so I don't need to pad it much. I sometimes pad some of the others if they're a bit shorter. I kind of think like, oh, you want a longer time to listen, so I just spew rubbish at you. Rubbish, rubbish, rubbish. A kind of a stream of unconsciousness kind of thing, but it's not like that in this case. I'll just say one thing, and I suppose I am repeating myself, but look, I do enjoy repeating myself. I just think that final image of the uncle at the wedding that she creates is just so, so powerful and apt. And she's also quick to point out that it's certainly not just Northern Unionists stroke loyalists that may feel that kind of sense of, am I really loved? It's absolutely a Northern Nationalist thing too. And that's what's interesting and and bizarre actually is that they, they have that in common, the feeling of the child that no one wants as Patricia puts it. And you know what? I want that child. That's all I'm saying. I want that. I'll mind that child. I'll bring that child to the park. And I don't care if they're wearing a blue jersey at the park or a green jersey. I'm pushing them on that swing. And if they want ice cream, they're bloody getting it. And on that really, really unhelpful, weird note, join me next time. Thanks to Patricia McBride. Keep doing what you're doing, guys, because you're doing it exceptionally well. Bet you wish you were here.